And on the sixth rappel, I leaned back on the anchor. My two buddies had already descended. I lean back on the anchor and the anchor pops off the mountain. And so I'm flying through the air. Literally, I went 450 feet through the air before I slammed into the wall the very first time. And luckily, it was an extremely steep uh, snow slope. And I bounced out another 50 feet and then landed like a dart, feet first, stuck in the snow. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how a world-class climber and mountaineer sketched out a business on toilet paper and built the nation's largest indoor climbing gym company. Thank you, listeners. This is a very special episode of Baby Got Backstory, as it is episode number 10. I know it feels like we've been doing this show a lot longer than that, but reaching 10 episodes is a milestone I'm extremely proud of. And I sincerely could not have done it without you, the listeners. It's not just the fact that you're listening, but you're also engaging. There's nothing that makes me happier than getting a text from a friend I haven't connected with in a while who thanks me for a particular episode that resonated with them. In this case, last week's Zingerman's episode with Ari Weinswag. Thanks, Morgan. I appreciate that. Or the person I don't know yet who sends an email asking questions and suggesting guests. Thank you, Steve. You know who you are. And thank you to everyone listening to this right now. I say this a lot, but this show, it's all about creating value for you as well as opening up a dialogue. And I realize I'm doing all the talking, but please, let's start the conversation. I am at Mark Gutman, M-A-R-C-G-U-T-M-A-N, on all social channels, Facebook, Insta, LinkedIn. And you can always send an email to podcast at wildstory.com with your thoughts and comments. I answer all of these, so please send them in. So thank you. And now, on today's show, episode 10. Yeah, baby. So I first met Chris Warner as his entrepreneur persona. I was looking for a speaker for an EO event, someone that could really grab the audience's attention and challenge them. Thus, I was introduced to Chris Warner, the founder, and at that time, the CEO of EarthTrex, an indoor climbing facility in Golden, Colorado. I didn't know too much more about him until he spoke on leadership at one of our events. And boy, did he grab our attention. He regaled us with stories of failed summit bids on K2, the world's deadliest mountain, successful summit bids on K2, still the world's deadliest mountain, guiding on Everest, watching horrified as other climbers either abandoned their partners in selfish summit attempts or even worse, stepped over dying or dead climbers as if they were nothing more than a fallen log or rock as they would summit at all costs. Chris's mountaineering philosophy was different. It was all about team and looking out for your partners. Coming home safe and alive was always more important than summiting. That might sound obvious from the comfort of a podcast, but I can assure you that when you set a goal in your mind is something, invest upwards of $50,000 or $75,000, it's pretty easy to get tunnel vision. Not that I've ever invested that much ever on a trip. I promised Lindsay, uh, my wife, I've never done that. I'm just saying. And some of Chris's accomplishments sound like the stuff of fiction. 
He has led over 200 international expeditions. He guided the first ever reality TV show on Everest and safely led his team to the summit of K2, the world's most deadly mountain. He pioneered new routes in the Himalaya, including winter ascents, and was the first American to solo an 8,000-meter peak, climbing up and down the extremely technical south face of Shisha Pang Ma in a 34-hour nonstop push. So Chris Warner is what I consider a quattro threat. Big mountain adventurer, leader, entrepreneur, and all-around great dude. A born entrepreneur today, Chris is an investor and mentor in the outdoor and fitness industries. Fascinated by building teams, Chris became a student of leadership. Today, Chris teaches leadership to teams that face challenges in which failure is not an option. And he's taught leadership at the Wharton School of Business, executives at Fortune 100 companies, and to covert and special operations teams in the U.S. intelligence and defense agencies. He starred in television programs on ABC, NBC, and the History Channel, and he is the co-author of several books, including High Altitude Leadership, What the World's Most Forbidding Peaks Teach Us About Success. Earthtrek started as a single location in Maryland and grew to multiple locations in the Maryland, D.C. area. There are two locations in Colorado, one of which is billed as the largest indoor climbing facility in the world. And last year, they merged with Planet Granite, an iconic brand in its own right, based in the Bay Area of Northern California. With new locations across the country from Wrigley Field in Chicago and Dallas in Texas, this new entity is on a mission to bring world-class climbing facilities to everyone in America. And if you haven't visited an indoor climbing facility lately, you might be surprised. What was once a dark, sweaty, chalky haven for hardcore climbers has now become the cornerstone of every urban renewal project. Young people are seeking out boutique fitness experiences, and they want something that's different than the traditional health club. If you peer in a window of these climbing gyms, you'll see that they are bright and airy. Their multicolored walls look like a set from a Dr. Seuss movie. And most of all, you'll see people, lots and lots of people, smiling, challenging themselves, supporting one another, loving what they're doing, all sorts, all types. Pros, weekend warriors, newbies, families, school-aged children in climbing leagues. The indoor aspect of climbing is exploding. Indoor climbing is the sport of the future, and Chris Warner and Earth Treks were there at the beginning. All right, Chris, we're here to talk about your life and story and your story as a mountaineer and your evolution from mountaineer to evolution to successful entrepreneur. And so uh, I'd love to go back to the beginning. I mean, you're one of the few people to summit both K2 and Everest. I mean, you must have grown up in a mountaineering environment with huge mountains and celebrity mentors. I mean, take me back to eight-year-old Chris. I mean, where'd you grow up and what was going on? You couldn't have nailed it any more accurately, Mark. I grew up in, I was born in New York City and grew up in New Jersey, just across the river. So we were, you know, a stone's throw from the George Washington Bridge. So I, I would imagine the altitude was somewhere like 156 feet above sea level. <laughs> so, and it was full on suburbia. There was no, uh, you know, outdoor recreation. There was baseball and football and, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, so in growing up, and and that's where I was kind of going with that. I, I had a you know inkling that that you didn't grow up in a, a big mountaineering environment. I mean, when was your first interest in the outdoors and in you know tackling these big mountains? So I was an avid reader as a kid, 
And what I loved to read were biographies, especially about historical figures and explorers. And man, I remember reading a book about a guy named Henry Morton Stanley Jr. And I think I read that book six or seven times in third grade. And he uh, had been an orphan from Scotland. He ends up in the United States, becomes a journalist, and he is the one who found Dr. Livingston. So he said that fav- famous line, Dr. Livingston, I presume. And that uh, was one of many of his African explorations. And, you know, that back then, journalism basically paid for this kind of exploration. And so he did all sorts of crazy things on the Nile and the Congo and built these crazy boats. And it was just like, it was just such a romantic story. And I was hooked on that romanticism. So um, every opportunity that I had, I would find some way to be outdoors, whether it was fishing or my grandmother lived up or my grandparents lived uh, kind of in the mountains of New Jersey. They, they lived by a lake and we used to go up there and go, you know, take the old boats out and go fishing for hours at a time and catching turtles and doing all other kind of stuff. Um, and then really the big uh, moment for me came in high school. So I hung around with a bunch of total punk kids as most kids were in New Jersey back then. And we were always getting into trouble. And uh, in 10th grade, a parole officer knocked on our home class door, dragged me and 11 other kids out in the woods. And I think it was society was trying to get even with us for all the kind of, you know, stupidity that we had done. Uh, And so they dragged us in the woods to torture us. And I loved every single minute of it. And literally it was a door, a door open that I didn't even know exists. And it was these these two outdoor educators, you know, these two kind of wilderness guides who, um, you know, they let me know that you can have a career in the outdoors and that you could take people and give them these life enriching experiences. And the best way for people to find themselves was to first get lost. So I was completely, you know, it was the kid stuff of this outdoor exploration, following the path of these heroes that I had. And then all of a sudden being able to, you know, I could see how this became like a life enriching experience for people. So I started working for that same outdoor program when I was 17. And we literally took kids out of the maximum security prison in New Jersey. And uh, through that outdoor, you know, kind of leadership experience led to the next outdoor leadership experience, et cetera. And um, for the last 37 years, 38 years, I've been doing nothing but taking people in the outdoors and showing them um, that they have a lot more potential than they maybe ever gave themselves credit for. Yeah. And so is that program, is it like a scared straight kind of thing or what, what was that? Oh yeah. It was that classic scared straight. Uh, if people remember that, that, uh, that kind of turn of phrase from the seventies and eighties. But yeah, we took, we literally took kids out of the maximum security prison. Um, we were hoping to keep them in the outdoors for six months. And the deal was if they stayed with us for the whole six months and would go canoeing and rock climbing and, you know, snowshoeing and backpacking and all sort of stuff. If they made it to the end of six months, then they um, actually had their records expunged and they were free. And I can't remember how many kids we worked with, but I think we had, two kids graduate. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was, it was a constant, uh, coming and going of sheriff cop cars, you know, coming and unhandcuffing kids coming back a couple of weeks, putting them back in handcuffs. <laughs> so I think most of them really liked having, uh, you know, three meals in a cot. So. Yeah. And what was the biggest challenge with those kids? I mean, why were they not matriculating through the program? Well, I think there's a lot of things going on. I mean, this was early in that movement. And so this is a very iterative process. And I, I think we were not very good, um, you know, therapists. We, I mean, we had no training. 
And um, I think we were also terrible at choosing the kids. Like we, I think we maybe wanted kids that we thought were strong and fast and adventurous, which was probably the worst group of kids because, you know, their idea of adventure was, you know, like breaking and entering and assaults, not backpacking and rock climbing. So I think we, I think we were, uh, we were just ahead of our times. And, you know, I'm sure that that industry has matured a lot since I was there. The way I understand it is you're on a path of, of perhaps you don't know what you're going to do with your life. You're, you're in high school. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. So that's not uncommon, but you go, you go to this program. I mean, what was that feeling like when you had this, this enlightenment or that aha moment? I mean, like what, what was going on with you at that time? It, it was literally like a light bulb going off. I literally, I thought that you graduated high school, you probably went to college and you became an accountant. Like I thought that was, there was one path in life. And then all of a sudden I was in the woods with these, you know, these two outdoor instructors and this one woman, uh, Rachel Holtzworth, she had climbed Denali and she had led an all women's team up Denali back in the, you know, the, the 1980s, might've even been late seventies. So, you know, here was this, you know, I don't know, incredibly accomplished outdoors woman. And she was just traveling the country, just, you know, being an outdoor guide. And then the other guide was a guy named Joe Thomas and he was from Boston. He was a punk kid, just like me. And, um, he was doing the same thing. They had just found a way to have a career taking people in the woods. And it, I, I, I literally did not know that this world existed until I met these two people. And then I was like, how do I become you? Like, I just want to spend my life out in the woods doing cool adventures. And they literally, you know, we had, plenty of time hiking and, you know, bushwhacking through the woods every day. So we had plenty of time to talk about it. And I was convinced at 15 years old that this was going to, how I was going to spend the rest of my life. You know, and I think that's always happens, right? We get these uh, mentors and these people we look up to and we just start trying to emulate them. And then we all of a sudden become ourselves one day, but you know, we ha- always have those, those people that, uh, that pave the way. So you're, you're outdoors, you're loving it. You're an outdoor educator. Uh, and if I hear you right, you're on the East coast What's the first big mountain that you decide to go climb? Oh, I climbed the Grand Teton in uh, Wyoming, and it's like 13,800-ish feet. And I actually told my mother I was going to go to college early, which was very unlike me. <laughs> and so I, I hitchhiked out to Wyoming from New Jersey and uh, met up with these guys from Minnesota. And we climbed it, and, and we climbed a pretty technical route on it, and we uh, climbed it without ropes. Looking back on it, I was like, I cannot believe that we that I lived through this whole experience. But here I was, you know, uh, I was had just turned eighteen years old. I was on the summit of this peak, at, an absolutely gorgeous, iconic mountain in Wyoming, um, with these you know newly found friends who now you know, suddenly were my best friends ever because of the shared experience. And I, I was completely addicted to this. And I did go to college um, and. I came back to New Jersey for winter break and I just couldn't hold this in. You know, like I did not tell my family that this was, this is what I was doing because I would have gotten a no. So I told my mom over Christmas, you know, mom, I actually didn't go back to school early. I I went to Wyoming, (laughs) you know, and I, I climbed this thing called the Grand Teton and my mother grew up in Brooklyn, New York. So she had no idea what Wyoming was or what the Grand Teton was. And I had this crazy uncle Rody and he used to, um, he was a rag salesman who preferred 
to uh, procrastinate at my parents' house, drinking whiskey all day as opposed to selling rags. And so he was sitting there and my mother looks at him like, Brody, have you ever heard of the Grand Teton? And he's like, Barbara, that's French for big tits. <laughs> I got <laughs> in so much trouble. <laughs> my good Catholic mother. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you had some explaining to do after that yes, one. Yeah. I have so many questions. First of all, uh, I, I'm dying to know how you become a rag salesman and what that looks like. But I don't know how successful rag sales are these days. So I'm not <laughs> sure you should uh, you should aspire towards that. Yeah, I'm very intrigued. That's the first time I've ever heard of a rag salesman. But the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the other thing, I'm, I mean, like, so uh, did you go to school out west or did, were you going to school out east at the time? Uh, actually in the middle. So all of my friends in high school were older than I was. And so some of them went to to uni- actually, one of them went to university. One of my three best friends, one went uh, into a sales position and the third went to prison. <laughs> so I decided I got to get the heck out of this town. And so I applied for college for an early admission, which was a January admission. And I got accepted. It was a small liberal art college in Northern Wisconsin. And I think they would have taken anybody. They just were desperate for their tuition dollars. So I left high school after Christmas. The only problem was I didn't tell anybody, except for my parents, obviously, that I was leaving. And um, I didn't actually attend all of the classes. In fact, I didn't take any uh, any exams, et cetera. So suddenly I'm in college in Wisconsin. And I, uh, you know, this is back the old payphone days. So I you know, called my parents up at, at some point. I'm like, do you know that you, you just got your report card and you got straight Fs? And I'm like, straight Fs, how's that happen? And they're like, well, apparently truancy <laughs> is a bit of a problem and not going and attending class, you know, not taking tests, et cetera. So my dad, who was a total badass, went up to, to meet with the assistant principal of the high school. And this guy had a nervous twitch. And my dad comes back and says, I think I got it all taken care of. He kept winking at me. And I'm like, Dad, the guy was scared of his mind of you. And he kept, he just, you know, he was twitching. So uh, anyway, I got straight Fs. And so I never got a high school diploma. And um, it, back in the early days, it didn't matter because there wasn't such a thing as, you know, email and, and the internet and stuff. Um, but funny enough, I actually applied for a doctorate program and couldn't get in because I didn't have a high school diploma. <laughs> so, <laughs> and what'd your dad do for a living? He was an accountant. That's why I thought that's what you did. You grew up to be an accountant. Yeah. And so what a, a departure from this family of like kind of my family, traditional professionals that kind of go to work every day and do their thing to now here you are at school. I mean, are you studying to be an outdoor educator or are you? Well, I I did start studying outdoor education and I realized it was a complete waste of time. Like you, uh, you do outdoor education. You don't study it. At least that was my, my experience. And I didn't have any problems getting jobs. I mean, especially because I wanted to work with hardcore kids and there was very few of us that, you know, wanted to torture themselves that way. So I kept leaving college. In fact, I went for uh, like that first winter semester. I went for that fall semester, did the Wyoming thing in the middle. And then I uh, left school and I put myself through college. My parents had a, a bunch of challenges that happened to them right when I was going into college. And so I had to pay for my own college education. And, and I'm one of six kids. So there's a ton of us that, were, you know, we were an expensive family. So, so I kept leaving to go work in the outdoor field and it, took me six years to finally get a degree, but only eight semesters. So as you know, it would have been normal, but I just kept leaving to go work. So I actually changed to a geography major pretty early on. Where are your outdoor jobs taking? Are you primarily out West? You know, I'm trying to... I tended to play out West and work out East. So I 
worked for this program in New Jersey, this uh, product use for uh, off and on for about three years. The guy who started that program actually was was tasked to start the first urban outward bound program. So in Baltimore, the city of Baltimore had a public private partnership and brought Outerbound to the city of Baltimore. So I went in and taught the very first course there. And so I was in and out of the Baltimore program for about four or five years. And sometimes in the middle of that, I would be, you know, teaching rock climbing in Colorado or, you know, I was a ski instructor and did a bunch of other stuff. But uh, then really in 1987, I was like, okay, it's time to really, you know, break out. And so I left uh, the United States and went to South America to go climbing for a couple of months. And, um, you know, you know, came back and I was in and out. I spent six summers in Peru and, you know, it just was really got into that whole international mountaineering thing. And, you know, back then you didn't need any money. You just needed time. Like you needed a little bit of money to get a, you know, a plane ticket. And I'll tell you a super quick story. I eventually transferred to the University of Colorado in Boulder. I have uh, wrapped up all of my classes. It's like, you know, May 10th or something like that. I'd taken all my exams and I went to my PO box and there was a letter in there that said I had gotten a $500 grant for, from uh, the, the state for education. Like I call up financial aid office. And I'm like, this is crazy. I, I'm already done with school. And like, actually, technically, school doesn't end to three o'clock today. If you can get to this office by three o'clock, we're going to give you a check for 500 bucks. So I got on my bicycle. I cruised up there, got my check for 500 bucks, got a hold of my buddy, Danny. I'm like, Danny, let's go to Peru. And so we, I had a 1969 Volkswagen bus. Four of us loaded ourselves into it in Boulder, Colorado. It broke down first in Wichita, Kansas, then broke down outside of Nashville and finally died in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> so we hitchhiked from Atlanta, Georgia to Miami, jumped on a plane to South America, spent two months climbing down there in Peru. I sold as much of my climbing gear as I possibly could so I could get back to the United States. I land in Miami. I hitchhike up to New Jersey. I get a job in a generic Kool-Aid factory. And they had this thing that looked like the space shuttle. And I, my job was to carry these hundred pound bags of sugar and dump them into this, you know, this gigantic stainless steel mixer. And then after a day of carrying like thousands of pounds of sugar, would have this thing about halfway filled up. And then this guy would come out of an office in his little white lab coat. And he would put in like a cup of flavor and a spoonful of coloring and it would spin around all night long. And the next morning we'd come in and we had a pour this Kool-Aid into these vacuum sealed uh, packages, silver packages. And anyway, I, I did that long enough until I could earn enough money to buy a new transmission for my Volkswagen bus. And so I buy this transmission in New Jersey. I go to uh, New York City to the Port Authority, get on a Greyhound bus down to Atlanta, and then go back and fix my Volkswagen, and then uh, you know push the thing basically back to Boulder, where I lived in it for the next bunch of months, and finish up my last semester of college. You know, and that you know leads me to believe, or, or leads me to ask, <laughs> how like, stupid can I be? <laughs> no, no, like I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed, like with your resiliency. Like, why finish? Like most of the climbers I know, and the people that are chasing mountains get so obsessed and so into that life that you know where, where I would think your natural path would be like, screw this. I love the outdoors. I don't need college. Plus you're, you're trying to raise money to pay for it and scratch, you know, you're, you're, you're showing like a lot of determination to finish. And, and I'm curious as to know why. I think it was because I just am so curious about the world. I think in a different life, I would have been an academic, you know, it made sense for me to want to continue my education. 
and you, you finish, you're, you're at CU Boulder, you're now a graduate in geography, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the, the last day of school, I uh, decide I'm going to go skiing with two of my buddies. And so we go off to Copper Mountain. They had double chairlifts at the time. And my two buddies get on one chairlift. I'm get back to get on the other. And I watch this guy tumble down the side of Copper Mountain. And there's crap everywhere. And I leave the skiing line. I go over to this guy. I, I think he's dead, right? It's crap is everywhere. And he's got one of these blue, uh, navy blue Parkers with the, you know, fake fur collar and the orange inside. And, uh, you know, he clearly is not from Colorado. I'm like, dude, are you okay? Like, where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm from Hawaii. I'm like, well, that explains why you're a terrible skier. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing in, in Colorado? And, and so, I, meantime, I'm getting his gear on and we get him, I get him over to the trail. I'm like, you got to go up the trail with me because you're going to die if somebody's not taking care of you. So, I'm like, what are you doing in Colorado? He goes, oh, well, I just got a, a grant from the Office of Substance Abuse Prevention. And they gave me $1.2 million to start an outdoor program for at-risk youth in, in Maui. And I'm like, really? I'm like, what are you doing here? He goes, well, I had to find somebody who knows how to do this stuff. I'm like, dude, I'm your man. I had started two of these programs. And he's like, all right, you want, to, uh, you want a job? I'll, I'll, I'll give you, it was $25 at the time, all expenses paid to be the adventure consultant of the county of Maui. So I had not even yet graduated from college. I think I was the highest paid graduate of the University of Colorado in December of 1987. <laughs> I had the single best job. I flew to Maui, lived there for a couple of months, con- you know, being a consultant. And the county at the time, when I left, they, uh, I went into the mayor's office and he literally opened a safe and he brought out stacks of $100 bills to pay me. And I had like, I don't know, six inches by six inches of $100 bills. And I put my day pack, I flew back to the mainland. I got in that crazy old 1969 Volkswagen bus and then took off on the back on the road again. Oh man. And so even that story, like you have this history of continually either seeking out or finding or gravitating towards at-risk youth, even this like, I mean, half the time I'm skiing and I see a yard sale, I'm like, oh, that stinks for that guy. And I, I go by, but you stop and you're like, I need to help you. I need to guide you. Where does that, where do you think that comes from? The short answer I'm sure is, you know, that I, I'm a big fan of the term altruism. And so altruism as opposed to heroism. So heroism is like, you literally put your life on the line. Altruism is like, all right, I'll just accept a little discomfort here. And uh, so they say that people who are uh, altruistic, you're, you're altruistic when you have the opportunity, when you think you can make things better. So we're uh, driving down the highway and you see an old woman with a flat tire. You're going to pull over because you could help that woman in probably two ways. You could probably fix her flat and you probably can, can you know, give her some kind of emotional comfort in that moment. But if you're going down the road and you see like this big, huge biker dude with a, with a trash transmission, you're probably just going to drive right by because that man does not need your emotional care. And you certainly don't know how to fix a transmission. So, you know, the thesis of this, of course, is that you stop and help when you think you can make things better. And I think I'm hardwired to stop and help. And this is actually a theme that totally comes through for the rest of my life. And sometimes at great levels of discomfort (laughs) and failure. Yeah. So I'm just hardwired to stop and help when people, you know, when I think I can be of value to people. Hardwired to stop and help. I love that. And so here you are, 
you know, your consultant to Maui, you're kind of doing your thing. It sounds like you're just taking life as it comes. It's very, you know, opportunistic, but you know that you have a, a focus on the outdoor world. Like when do you start really taking mountaineering seriously? And when do you start really going after some of these really like iconic summits and, and, and highly, you know, dangerous, you know, summits? Yeah, so I um, I went to Peru in 1987 with my buddy Danny Jenkins, and we had no gauge if we were talented or not, right? So suddenly we're in a place that's an international center of mountaineering. You know, I'm just informal, but like all these mountaineers from around the world are there, and most people are like you know finding the easiest way to the summit of a peak, and they're doing like one peak you know every ten days or something like this. Well, we didn't know that that was the way it was done. So we went and tried to do the hardest things that we could and as many as we could in a week. And so here we were just cranking stuff out. And then we would come back to this town of Juarez, Peru, where all the climbers you know, would resupply. And people were like, what do you do this week? And we're like, oh, well, we were up in that valley and we did four peaks. And you know, like, and people were like, what? Like, and we just literally did not know the rules. So we just thought you know, that it was quantity and quality mattered, uh, you know, as opposed to taking the, list, the least risky a pursuit, which is what most people were doing. And then we uh, met a couple of people that were thinking, you know, that knew better, but were thinking like we were thinking or were acting like we were thinking. And so all of a sudden we started hanging around that group of people. And uh, one of them was this Irish climber named Ian Ray. So Ian was, you know, he was, he was older than us. I don't know, he was probably like 30 or something. And uh, he goes, oh, you guys should go to India and try this peak called Chibling which literally means the penis of the god Shiva. So it looks like the Eiffel Tower when you're looking straight on it. It's just this gigantic, you know, obviously soaring phallic symbol. And it's ridiculously difficult. And it's, you know, like where hard men go to, I don't know, test themselves. So it was a real you know, hero's journey when you think about it. And we head off there with a third friend. And we're going to climb a route that had been done once before. And we, you know, we put our backpacks on at the bottom and we start up and, and, and the first day stuff starts going wrong. Snowstorms come in and the climbing is extremely, extremely technical. And the second day is harder than the first day. And then the third day, all of a sudden we're stopped by this uh, a massive cold front and a blizzard comes in. And so now we're trapped on a ledge that's about half the size of your kitchen table. And um, two of the guys are huddled on the ledge and I'm like sleeping on the chairs on the side of the ledge, we end up uh, being forced in an open bivy with no tent, no, no way to make food, et cetera, for uh, three days and two nights. And somewhere along the, that plot uh, of those days, the cook pot gets knocked off the ledge. And so now we have no way to melt snow for water or to heat you know, food. And so we have no food and no water and we can't descend because the avalanche danger is so great. We have to go up and over the peak. And so that starts a 34 hour nonstop climb up and over. And on, on our way down, we have to descend off the other side of the peak. And as we're descending off the other side of the peak, we have to do a series of six repels to get down this one super crazy steep cliff face. And on the sixth repel, I lean back on the anchor my two buddies had already descended. I lean back on the anchor and the anchor pops off the mountain. And so I'm flying through the air. Literally, I went 450 feet through the air before I slammed into the wall the very first time. And luckily, it was an extremely steep uh, snow slope. And I bounced out another 50 feet and then landed like a dart, feet first, stuck in the snow. 
And when I hit the, 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 the slope the first time, I caused an avalanche. And so as I was now embedded into the snow, the avalanche hit me. And I thought for certain I was, I was a goner, but it was able to, you know, it wasn't that big. It passed around me. And so here we are. We're still, you know, three or 4,000 feet up the slope, up this peak. And, you know, a day and a half of descending still ahead of us. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know how many times you've fallen 450 feet through the air, but it's it scared the living crap out of you. So I, <laughs> I had literally only a scratch on my nose physically, but I had severe psychological damage. And it was it took every single thing I had for weeks and weeks and weeks to try to get out of the fear that I had experienced. And um, anyway, walking away from that peak, you know, shivling in India, we end up in Kathmandu, Nepal and run into this uh, Polish climber and start telling him what we had done. And he was like, oh my God, if you've done that, you should try these other things. And so suddenly the next list of challenges were presented to us. And, you know, I, I just kept jumping at the next challenge. And I was always surprised because I'm not like a, I'm not an athlete, like I'm an endurance guy. I, you know, I can't do backflips and, you know, one arm fingertip pull-ups and stuff like that. I'm just like a good endurance guy. And, and I had trained a lot of covert ops teams and I found the same thing in the covert ops world. There's like the young, strong guys who use brawn to solve every problem. And then there's like the old skinny, you know, goofy guy who uses his brains to solve every problem. <laughs> and, and that's me. I've always been the, the guy who uses brains over brawn because I just wasn't blessed with enough brawn. Oh my gosh. And so just to clarify on that fall, I mean, you have completely come off protection. You're not tied to anything. You're just free falling. And then, yeah, yeah it takes, I, there's actually this thing on the, in the internet called a splatter So you go on and you put your weight in, how far you fall, and it tells you how long you're in the air, whatever the variable was missing, right? So the variable there was, I was in the air for 5.8 seconds. And what yeah. are you thinking as you're free falling? Like what's going well, through your mind? It was literally, how do I survive? I was not at all ready to die. And so I, um, a map of the, of the terrain below me just appeared in my head. I knew that eventually I was going to hit the snow slope that was on the snow slope. I had to stop myself somehow on that snow slope. Cause if I failed to do that, the snow slope ended in a giant cliff of ice that you'd be lost in what they call, you know, a, an ice fall. So like basically think of a waterfall, my body would have never been found if I ended up there. So I had a couple of thousand feet of the snow slope that I was going to have to somehow figure out how to stop on. And I normally a mountaineer has an ice ax that you use as like a break, kind of like a go-kart break to dig into the snow to stop you. Um, but mine was strapped to my backpack because we were repelling. We didn't, we didn't, you know, actually an ice axe would have been in the way. And so um, I knew I had to somehow dig my mittens in to stop me. And you never want your crampons to hit first because um, you can imagine if your crampon hits and the deceleration is so great that that force gets absorbed by your calves just above your, 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 you know, your climbing boots. And so generally what happens there is you have a massive snapping of your tib and your fib. And so um, I didn't want to break my legs. So I knew I had to pull my feet up so that my knees were on, my hands and my mittens were on. And that's how I was going to somehow stop myself. Well, the reality was the third guy on our team, a guy named Austin Weiss, he had had a premonition that one of us was going to die on this peak. And so he had been extremely cautious the whole climb. And when he saw me falling through the air, he knew that his premonition was true. So he grabbed the ends of the rope. And so when the rope came taut, it pulled, I pulled him off 
but he changed the trajectory, the arc of my fall. So instead of going, say, a thousand feet through the air before I hit the first time, I actually only went 450 feet through the air before I hit the first time. And I'm sure I would have never survived a thousand foot fall. I mean, I've watched people fall that far and it is unbelievably uh, disgusting what happens to the human body when it slams into a rock wall after falling a thousand feet through the air. When you're telling that story, I was about to be like, Austin, like bad premonition, but he, but he saved you. Right. So that's uh, he kind of, kind of, Oh, he totally saved my life. A hundred percent saved my life. Yep. So, okay. So you go through that and and you said it took a, a little while to get your nerve back, but I mean, like what drives you after that experience to continue to, to push? I mean, when you look at a big mountain. And I think a lot of people here have, have gotten up and have, have done some, you know, hiking and things like that. But I mean, the, the sheer risk that is involved in, in big mountains is, is incredible. And, and you've experienced it. You've just literally survived a miracle. What makes you continue to say, like, I want to dedicate my life and keep putting myself uh, at risk in this way? So, Mark, there's only certain situations when you have to be the absolute best version of yourself, right? You have to be, you know, intellectually, you know, working at a le- like solving problems at a level you can't even believe you could solve. That you have to physically be able to give and give and give, you know, and push and push and push, and then emotionally keep it together and be a source of strength for your friends. And this was one of those opportunities where that had to happen. I had to be the best version of myself, and being the best version of yourself is addictive. Like you want that experience again because you cannot believe how empowering it is. Like how, and I don't mean this in an egomaniacal way. I mean it in exactly the opposite way. It humbles you to such a powerful level and uh, it lets you know that you have a gift. And, um, you know, maybe this is a little bit of uh, having been raised in the Catholic church and having had nuns all my life. (laughs) So, um, you know, the, the nuns used to tell me, Christopher, if you don't use your God-given talent, you're going to go straight to hell. <laughs> so, you know, I was just blessed with this talent to be able to just keep pushing, you know, in insane physical situations um, and being, you know, a real rock to my teammates um, and solving these, you know, seemingly impossible problems at the same time. And uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I felt the same thing through entrepreneurism. I felt that certainly in, you know, leading, you know, teams, all sorts of crazy places, but, you know, just in working with groups in general. So it's just a, a, a an addictive place to go. I, I love that. Addicted to the best version of yourself and, and how it is a, uh, a thread through your life. And I do want to move over to your life as an entrepreneur. But before we do that, I just kind of want to give a little context. So, you know, you're, you're doing all these mountains, but you really get, you know, well known for summoning and leading teams up both Everest and K2. When, what was the first one that you tackled? And then kind of what, what did that progression look like? Well, I ended up on Everest in, 19, excuse me, in 2000 for the first time. Um, and then was there, I worked on the north side of Everest as a guide. So I worked there 2000, 2001, and 2003. Uh, in 2003, I actually guided the first ever reality TV show on Everest. So, um, you know, I feel extremely amounts of guilt about that because I think I helped ruin the peak. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, on K2, I was a three-time, uh, you know, I was there three times as well. First in 2002, uh, we failed. Nobody summited that year at all. Um, that ended 
quite tragically for uh, not my team, but I was involved in a major tragedy on that peak. Um, and then I came back in 2005 with a really good friend. We didn't summit. No one summited again in 2005. And in 2007, I led a team there and we summited. And we uh, luckily had worked a deal out with NBC. And we filmed that and had an amazing documentary that went on to be nominated for six Emmys. And it is, uh, you know, you as a story guy, actually would laugh at it because there was no character development in this film, right? It was all man versus nature. And it literally was like three guys getting the crap kicked out of them by this mountain, like the blizzards, the, you know, it was just horrendous, the situations that happened. And we were lucky enough to capture all that stuff on film. So if it's, if you're like a really, like, if you have a sadistic part of your personality, you would love that, that, show <laughs> we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes as well yeah yeah it's all on the internet so we can easily do that oh super cool super cool and so you know going back your first business i think was your your guiding business is that correct and you started that with a couple hundred bucks yeah so i started earth checks with 592 dollars um i literally had just come back from the himalayas and i was working for outward bound in baltimore and i was frustrated with the idea of you know when you take these hardcore kids out you just you didn't necessarily see tons of progress, and so that was starting to, to to wear on me. And I wanted to just start taking normal adults out as a part time business, just to be able to you know share with them the fun of climbing. Hey, climbing could be fun, you know. And so I started the business with five hundred ninety two dollars. I had just, as I said, I had just come back from the Himalayas, and I was pondering this idea. One of my coworkers said to me, "You know, for somebody who takes so much risk with your personal life." why don't you take one with your professional life? And he really just put me on the spot. I mean, he shamed me into starting this business. And so we started as an outdoor guiding service and mountaineering business, thus, thus the name Earth Treks. And then um, started taking people to South America and to you know, things like the Matterhorn and Mount Blanc in Europe and eventually to Nepal. And then in 1997, we opened our first indoor climbing gym. And that business was, you know, we were early to that business. It was, I it was successful as a business, but it was never going to really, you know, knock the, it wasn't going to be a great business, but things really changed uh, over the next 10 years. And it was really about, you know, the mid two thousands, I'd say that the indoor climbing gym business really became exciting um, as a, as an investment. And so I built up a company um, when I finally sold it, we had 11 units. Uh, we had about a thousand employees. We were serving 2 million customers a year. So from $592 to, um, you know, being a national brand with 2 million customers. Yeah, we moved kind of quick through that. So let's kind of back up a little bit. So first of all, who was that person that shamed you? Did, what was his name? Uh, his name was Bob Charles, and he was another Outward Bound instructor. Uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting to think of all these people that had this profound effect on you, right? And kind of connect the dots and Bob, just another one of them that, uh, that showed up and, and really pushed you to do that. Huh? People always realize they have to nudge me. Right, like I think it's because I have all these friends that play that role in my life. I'm always like, "Come on, Warner! Like, don't be an idiot! Like, just do this." And then they kind of push me a little bit. And then as soon as I do that, I'm like, you know, I just take off. It's like they fire the gun and the race starts. Right. So, yeah. (laughs) But they drag me to the starting line, and then I get to the finish line. So. Well, we kind of glossed over. I mean, Earth Trucks, you know, turned out to be a monumental success. You know, just to clarify, you've had, you were the founder, you've had a very nice exit, you're on to your next 
uh, chapter, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but it was not an overnight success. And so going back, like I know that you sketched out uh, your business on the side of a mountain uh, yeah. on some on some uh, interesting toilet paper. paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, was it the gliding business or was it the the climbing gym? No, so I was on Denali with a client, and um, he actually he was at that point, like his late thirties and he controlled about a billion dollars worth of, um, real estate in New York city and that kind of the tri-state area. And we got stuck at 14,000 foot in a blizzard for six days. And man, we were bored out of our freaking minds and had read every book and had memorized the ingredients and big Newtons. It was just like, we were just about to go, we were going crazy. So on the third or fourth day, I said to Kevin, you know, I always wanted to open an indoor climbing gym. And he's like, oh my God, we finally have something to talk about. So the only paper we had was toilet paper and we had a Sharpie marker. And with Kevin's help, we just, you know, cranked through projections and just, you know, modeled out, like just economically modeled out what it would take to build a climbing gym um, and how much you could make. And the big question was, could we, um, you know, if, if Kevin was going to lend me the money, could I pay him back in a timely manner? And so in the end, we figured out it would cost about $400,000. And then I could pay him back in five years with a, with a significant interest payment. So it wasn't like he just gave me this money at all. So he lent me the, the $400,000. We found a building and uh, we paid him back in about three years. Yeah. So you said it wasn't, it, it didn't start as a great business, but it sounds like a pretty good business to me. You're able to, to meet your financial obligations and, and you know, make a little bit of money. Yeah. And, and our needs are really small back then. I mean, we literally were, well, first look, I, the first, 10 plus years I ran the business, I took $19,000 out. So I just kind of, you know, I lived off of $19,000 and just continued to reinvest as much as I possibly could. Um, and a lot of it was not even reinvestment. It was like, we had made terrible mistakes. So we had to pay for those mistakes, you know, like, you know, whatever, like the wrong hot water heater, like whatever it happened to be. There was always some little crisis that was coming in that, that absorbed the cash. And I also had a really strong belief that a business has to pay its employees um, a decent wage because we were attracting above average people to work for us. And I was taking them away from other opportunities because of the, you know, we were, it was exciting. And so people were willing to give up good jobs to come work for our company. So I was like, okay, I have to, I have to reinvest as much of the profits of the business back into the, to the staff as I possibly could. To, to make sure that this whole thing really works. The good part of it, that was, is we built a, a really, I mean, an incredibly loyal team. And most of us worked together for about 20 years. And so, um, you know, we grew up together. We watched each other get married and have babies and go through health crises and all this other stuff. And that, you know, the, the, the power of that team was we were way more family than we were business. That's for certain. And I think it all, you know, really started with this kind of this philosophy that, you know, the, the, the business is there to serve the employees and, you know, charity begins at home. And so, uh, yeah, the, the money was, whenever we had money, we tried to redirect it. But in the early days, we didn't have any money. I and mean, there was definitely times where everybody threw their credit card down on the table to try to keep the business alive. And we were, uh, you know, maybe we were ahead of our times, but we were, we were lucky to be able to learn a ton when it was relatively inexpensive to make mistakes. And I do worry for people who are starting businesses today. I think it's a lot more expensive to make mistakes than it was 20 years ago. I mean, was there, was there any moment where like you just didn't think it was going to survive? 
Well, no, because I think the reaction of the customer is just too strong. So you always knew it was going to survive. There was definitely uh, moments that were difficult. I mean, we had we had just had signed a lease on our second building, and we had uh, you know a deal worked out with a bank, and we pulled the roof off this building. So we basically completely destroyed somebody's building, and the bank came back and said, "Well, instead of giving you the nine seventy five that we thought you needed, we're only going to give you uh, six hundred thousand dollars." And this happened the day before I was leaving for K2. <laughs> and so I went in to pick up the check, thinking it was going to be nine seventy five. I came out with a $600,000 check, gave it to my team and said, look, I'll be back in three months. <laughs> and I'll, I'll raise the money when I get home. So I went off to, to Pakistan. I came back, was able to raise uh, the $350,000 that we needed. And we opened that second facility. And you know it, it all worked out. But these were you know, tremendous acts of faith. I mean, you literally, as I said, you, we had destroyed this man's building and we didn't know how we were going to pay for it, but we're like, oh, it'll all work out. I'll make it happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that the, the reaction of the customer was so strong. I mean, what surprised you most as you started putting climbing gyms out there and, and you know, what, what was the biggest surprise? Well, when climbing gyms first started, they literally were, they were clubhouses for climbers. And my um, approach, I say mine, but you know, it's obviously I was affected by all these other people. But our, our approach was that we were, you know, we were a clubhouse, not a clubhouse for climbers. We were just a clubhouse. So, you know, we we let everybody in and we literally we built specialized training rooms to make it easy for people to learn how to climb, less intimidating, etc. Um, we designed the walls and we, you know, the climbs that we offered to people were were more um, you know, they just they, they were more accessible. And we made sure that we didn't hire any egomaniacs and our competitors at the time were really, as I said, they were clubhouses or climbers. They generally had bathrooms that didn't flush. The climbs were too hard. The staff was too uh, aggro. And, you know, they never cleaned the place up. And we were the opposite. Like we spent more time cleaning than we probably spent on any other aspect of the business because we just wanted to make it, you know, feel nice and comfortable and welcoming. And we started our business in, you know, in a pretty crazy place, which was Columbia, Maryland. And Columbia, Maryland is dead flat. It's like super middle class. And it just was a, you know, we reflected our community really well by the way that we ran our business. And as a result, that the place was jam-packed. I mean, when we opened our doors for the very first time, there was a sidewalk outside the building that was 300 feet long. And it was jam-packed with people. And this was before, you know, there was no Facebook. There was no other way to get the word out. It was just the word had spread by people telling each other, hey, they're going to open at three o'clock today. And we opened the doors at three o'clock. And literally, as I said, there was 300 plus people standing on this 300 plus long sidewalk waiting to get in the door. And we were packed from day one. That <laughs> so, sounds like it surprised you. <laughs> it totally surprised. Actually, the funniest part is none of us knew anything about running a retail style operation. So we literally did not know how much money to have in the the uh, the the cash register when we first opened. We didn't know <laughs> like how many quarters we're supposed to have, how many nickels, how many dollars. I mean, we li- we knew nothing. So what's the answer yeah. to that now? Two hundred bucks, but um, we, <laughs> what we found, Mark, and I think it, this is, you know, I, I think this is universal truth, right? People will forgive you if you uh, if you are nice. 
And so people would come in and they're like, hey, you know, like we, we don't know how to do this yet. Like, blah, blah, blah. like, oh, that's totally cool. You know, like, and then you, you know, like they just, we just were super nice and everybody just responded nicely back to us. A good lesson to, to take to heart, you know, to just remember that uh, people will forgive you. Yeah. Yeah. And they, for, I mean, they forgave us for, I mean, it was, it is amazing how little we knew. And really it was our willingness to take so much feedback from people. I think that really made the difference long-term when we grew this business, because we, you know, like, look, we grew from one unit that we had built from four for $400,000. Now, you know, when I, I, I just left the company, but our, you know, we were building now gyms that were, were four or five and $6 million gyms. And, you know, it's a completely different style of business. I mean, if we hadn't learned these, you know, hadn't made these mistakes at the $400,000 level, we would have been crushed at the $4 million level. And so how does like leadership and, and your big mountaineering experience, how does that translate and influence the way you see entrepreneurship and the way that you bring that into the business? Well, I think if you look at my past, there's really three uh concentric or, you know, circles that kind of overlap, right? The little Venn diagram of life. So I have Chris Warner as Mountaineer. So when you're uh, leading these teams where you're under-resourced against these gigantic goals, you can only succeed by being a great team. And then I have this entrepreneurship part of my personality, right? Which is the same thing. Like if you're going to go out and start a business and, you know, you're putting your, your economic future at risk. Um, and we were always under-resourced. I mean, that $400,000 gym probably would have really cost us $800,000 to build if we had had it, but we just used, you know, we outsmarted the world to save $400,000. And then uh, on top of that, I've been teaching leadership for roughly 35 years and I'm fascinated by the study of leadership. And, you know, I've, I've taught leadership for 16 years at the Wharton school of business. Um, I've worked with a lot of, you know, uh, fortune 500 executives and CEOs, including, you know, multiple times at Google. Um, and I've worked with, you know, NFL coaches when they won the Super Bowl and NHL teams and covert ops teams and special ops teams and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. So I am literally fascinated by the topic of leadership and the application of leadership theory to real life challenges. And I've been lucky because I've, I'm not I'm not like your classic academic. I actually live and breathe this stuff and literally put my life on the line relative to these to these theories. So all of these things come together and it's really all it is all about leadership. It's all about how do you create a team in which you can help people become literally the best versions of themselves. So they could have that same experience that I had, you know, falling through the air on shivling without <laughs> not getting called. <laughs> and so you've had a, a successful exit. Uh, Earthtrex has since uh, gone through a merger with another very well-known um, climbing gym operation called Planet Granite out west. There's expansion going on. You've you've left this this great legacy that's being carried on by another group of people. What's next for for Chris Warner? Well, I'm fascinated by a lot of opportunities. I'm lucky that I don't have to rush into anything. So clearly I'm going to continue to be um, as much of an athlete as I possibly can. So I have a bunch of climbing goals that I'm trying to check off my little personal list in the next year um, and next bunch of years, really. I have been having all sorts of fascinating conversations with people in the outdoor and fitness industry and really trying to understand the challenges that they face. There's um, a lot of really nice companies that are um, will never be big enough to attract, you know, private equity style money like we were able to attract. But they need some help, and I think I could be really helpful to them. So we'll see what happens with that. 
um, I really got to get around to writing another book because I have this, the whole thing is in my head. I just need to put it down on paper. So I, I have no shortage of challenges, Mark. Is there a title for that book yet? Uh, no, but it's really the leadership work that I've been doing with companies. And I, I know how powerful it is. So I just really need to, as I said, get it out of my head. <laughs> well, if the 20-year-old self ran into you today, what would he say? Would he, would he, what would he think? Would he believe it? Well, I wouldn't believe the problem I have with male pattern baldness. And <laughs> <so>. <laughs> You mean you had more hair back then? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I know that that 20-year-old self and I would get along famously because we both have this you know, passion that really drives us. I, I'm sure he would listen to me because I really always looked up to people. I always had mentors in my life, and I just valued that relationship so strongly. So I, I think, yeah, I know that we would have a real blast together. The good thing about him, he would be a hell of a lot better uh, at being on the front end of the rope, you know, leading the pitches. And I would be more than happy to follow him and cheer him on the whole way. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great if we could have our 20-year-old self just leading everything and uh, we just get to get them yeah. to follow up? That'd be, yes. That'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. And then last question for you. Uh, what's one of your favorite stories? It could be one that you've encountered. It could be you know something fictional, a movie, a book. Uh, just just a favorite story of yours and, and why? And it doesn't have to be the favorite, but a favorite. Okay. So I think the world's greatest movie is Chitty, Chitty Bang Bang. And the reason I think that is because you got this total dorky guy who actually, I think that Dick Van Dyke and I have exactly the same body structure and the same kind of silly uh, curiosity. And he gets this super hot chick and he gets to go on this amazing road trip with her in this cool car and save all of these people in the process. So if your life can mimic uh, the story in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you're doing damn well for yourself. And that is Chris Warner. So that tragedy that Chris mentioned on K2 in 2002? Well, while doing some research, I found an article written by Chris that shares his experience. I must forewarn you. What I'm about to read is hard to take at times and describes in vivid, sometimes gory detail. If this sort of thing bothers you, you might want to stop listening to today's show right now. Okay, if you're still with us, this was written by Chris Warner. The experience I'm about to describe made the decision to go home very easy. I couldn't share this with you when I was on the mountain because the family involved still needed to be notified. Below is the email I sent to a few friends just after the event. Dear friends, well, I am back in base camp after experiencing one of the worst days of my life. As I was standing at advanced base camp, one of our groups started screaming. A body was falling down the face, bouncing, spinning, tumbling. Pieces of gear spread downward. Was it two bodies? Was it Pasang Dawa, a Sherpa on our team, who was high above us, jumaring on the fixed ropes? Was it one of the four high-altitude porters that were climbing from Camp 1 to Camp 2? Everyone was screaming. Henry Todd on the ropes high above us dodged one object and then seemed to be hit by the second. He was knocked off his feet, did it kill him? The radios were screaming. Base camp, climbers on the ridge, us at advanced base camp, were all crying out for information. Rod Richardson and I emptied our packs, pulling 
from the pile anything we would need to save this man's life. Henry shouted over the radio, Don't worry, he is dead. There is no need to bring a first aid kit. Captain Iqbal, the liaison officer for the Chinese-Pakistan Friendship Expedition, had been descending from Camp 3 on K2's Abruzzi Ridge. As he was rappelling, or maybe simply switching, from one rope to the next, the rope either broke, later we confirmed that the rope did break, or he slipped, plunging over 5,000 feet to his death. It wasn't a pretty fall. Large red spots marked every point of contact, and his body finally stopped, pushed into the snow, about 500 feet above those of us at advanced base camp. Rod and I were the first on the scene. His body had been severely destroyed by each of the dozen impacts, and we pronounced him dead at 1.11 p.m. I've held two people as they died in my hands. I've rescued at least a dozen climbing accident victims, pulling them from crevasses, resplinting compound fractures, using drugs to pull people from comas. I've never witnessed anything so gruesome. In parentheses, last night I used intense emotional energy to not see that sight every time I closed my eyes. By a miracle, his large red down jacket, which had hit Henry, and an Ensolite pad tumbled down with his body. We were able to use this to package him, and with some short ropes, we, Pasangdawa, Henry Rod, Gia, and I, lowered him to the bottom of the snow. Here we gathered the parts of a tent and gently wrapped him in layer upon layer of nylon, and thankfully we had him beautifully wrapped before any of the Pakistani climbers and porters on the mountains arrived. Pita, Henry, Rod, Pasang, Dawa, Gia, and I sat at the base next to Captain Iqbal for more than an hour waiting for help to arrive. We all had funny stories to tell about this larger-than-life man whom everyone in base camp knew and loved. As I told and listened to the stories, mine were about Catholic school, Iqbal and I spent an hour laughing about my elementary education. He wanted to know if the nuns were beautiful women. How was I to know at eight years old? Come on, man. You can tell. All I could see was their faces. My stomach began to turn. I felt the nausea growing and I finally had to leave the scene and walk the two hours back to base camp. I cried much of the way. You know something? K2 is climbable, of course. But this is not the year for me. The bad weather, our last two forecasts have been exact opposites from stable and low winds. We now have snowstorms and 90 mile an hour winds at 8,000 meters. And the two deaths had made my decision for me. I am coming home. I would love to spend the next few weeks in a warmer, safer place. After all, today is my birthday. I might as well give myself the gift of returning early to bother my poor employees. And that is Chris Warner. Do you want me to, you want me to sing the, the song? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Hey, Chitty Ho, Chitty 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 Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we love you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so good. <laughs> Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS. So you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 